From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 665, The Unicorn Project with guest Gene Kim, recorded Friday, November 15th, 2019. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my very favorites today, Gene Kim, who is a multiple award-winning CTO, researcher, and author that's been studying high-performance technology organizations since 1999. And he was the founder and CTO of Tripwire for 13 years, and he's written six books, including The Unicorn Project, The Phoenix Project, The DevOps Handbook, The Shingo Publication Award-winning Accelerate, <laughs> And the Visible Ops Handbooks, which are the ones I originally read way back in the day. And he's been organizing the DevOps Enterprise Summit for the since 2014, which I've actually been to as the Runaz guy. Picked up some great shows there. Welcome back, sir. Uh, Richard, so great to be back. I mean, I can't believe it's been this long since we've last talked. Well, the last talk was the DevOps Handbook, which was two years ago. Uh, <laughs> you know, I prefer to talk to you every year. But it doesn't always work that way. And then you introduced me to Nicole Forsgren, and uh, she's just stolen me away for the conversations around DevOps and Dora and now part of Google. It's they, you know, my, my, what is the heartbeat of DevOps today comes from Nicole more than anybody else. Oh, that's great. Uh, oh, you're among good company. I mean, oh, it's my goodness. been, uh, well, a high point of my career to work with her on the state of DevOps report, for she, sure. She's actually the grown-up in the room. That's the laugh I always <laughs> have, right? Professionally educated, PhD, proper statistics. Like, yeah, okay. No, you are the adult supervision. No two ways about it. I, I really want to dive into the Unicorn Project, but I've got to read you this comment from a past show that I think ties so, – it's just like literally <laughs> you need to read the book. Uh, I'm going to leave the name out just because I think this person is talking a little bit too specifically about their company. Uh, <laughs> and, but he, he did say, uh, DevOps have been an interest of mine for the past few years. I love learning what the research is showing. I thought the findings of the DORA 2019 research about enterprises struggling the most with software delivery was very interesting. And it was a point that Nicole made about bigger companies actually struggling more than the smaller ones. Uh, I work for a large state government agency, and I see that we are slowly trying to adopt DevOps, which would have never been considered just a few years ago. And so good for us. But there are powerful forces that slow us down. For example... <laughs> We have a change management board comprised of many managers that meets once a week on Mondays to prove all releases. Nothing gets deployed unless this board is met to discuss <laughs> the project and software proposed to be released and updated. I'm sure that when this started many years ago, it was for good reasons, but now it can be a major drag on getting things done out there for users to use. Does that, that is almost could be taken from the unicorn project. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I, and it makes you make we we laugh when we hear this, but mm -hmm. we also cry, and yeah. I think that's really the motivation of uh, the Unicorn Project. I mean, it's set in the same universe as the Phoenix Project, but told from the perspective of a developer. And uh, yeah, I think there's kind of four things that really motivated me uh, to work on this for the last three years. One is there's all there's these invisible structures that are needed to mm -hmm. enable developers to be productive. Uh, I mean, I think in so many organizations. Uh, you know, you can be 
uh, you, know, you can't do anything alone, right? You need to work with four different teams or 20 different teams and infrastructure teams, uh, and and you have to get threaded through the change management process. I mean, those, those are all things that really uh, take away productivity and joy out of the work that uh, we love doing. Another thing that was hinted in that um, and that quote that you just read is this incredibly strong opposition to support new ways of working. And sure. so uh, and these are very powerful, entrenched silos, and they're everywhere. Uh, it's the functional work centers. It's the processes, the advise, yeah, the architecture boards, <laughs> the federated architecture boards, uh, you know, even the, the, the project funding model, the fiscal release process. I mean, all those really in many organizations you know, prevent kind of a better way of working to emerge. Um, and then, you know, something that's a really um, – uh, it was an education for me just seeing there's this orthogonal problem. The DevOps movement was, you know, famously identified how hard it was to get code to where it needed to be, which is in production so that right. customers could use it. This is other orthogonal problem like data. How do we get data out of these systems of record and data warehouses into where it needs to be, which is in the hands of developers to use in the daily work? Uh, and so, uh, and, and something I also took a lot of delight in is like, just trying to be explore kind of what behaviors do we need in our leaders to support these kind of transformations. And, uh, you know, uh, there are some that are, uh, kind of part of this rebellion, right. you know, taking risks to do the right thing. And there are leaders who just really like status quo and uh, they're, uh, they're not opposing, but they're certainly not helping. And uh, I'm kind of uh, relish the thought of that kind of uh, in book clubs, uh, people discussing, uh, am I a, uh, Kurt or Maxine or Maya, Chris, the VP of R&D, who <laughs> really is, you know. Is resisting the process, even if indirectly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, and, and you know, I, I do firmly believe in this idea that nobody goes to work to try and ruin things. Like that each day you're going to work trying to make the situation better. And that even Chris thought he was doing the right thing in protecting things, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, even though it ended up being an impediment to progress. I think it's really hard to get convince someone that they're on the wrong side of something. <laughs> right, for sure. In fact, you know, in the successive drafts of uh, Unicorn Project, you know, Chris um, Allers, the VP of R&D, he, you know, came out of the Phoenix Project. Uh, uh, over, you know, draft after draft, um, he became a weaker and weaker character. And, um, you know, the byproduct has actually made and made room for, you know, Maxine and uh, the protagonist and uh, her counterpart, Kurt, the uh, – uh, you know, a, a lowly QA manager, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, allowed them to be stronger. And uh, I actually really did love these scenes where, you know, uh, Chris is just exasperated. He's like, you guys did what? <laughs> like, you, you put, you, you know, the, you know, he's being put in these very uncomfortable situations <laughs> where uh, it's taking into areas of deep discomfort, right? Straying further and further from the plan, <laughs> further and further from budget. And uh, I did get some joy out of uh, sort of depicting what that must feel like. <laughs> well, and I think a, a lot of folks are uncomfortable with this sort of rebellion aspect like it's it's charming in movies but in real life you know the re- the rebels are typically the bad guys you know <laughs> that you know <laughs> that's funny well, and, and so like um the a villain uh comes back in this uh, book right you know mm-hmm. sarah yes um, she's back and she's uh She's more horrible than ever with even more powerful allies this time. <laughs> a board member is on her side. Well, and I, you know, not to give away the ending, but of course <laughs> you knew what the ending was going to be. But as someone who's worked in, in, in different levels in companies as well, like it sounded like she had a strategy to dismantle the company. And so in some respects, performance in that company was a, an impediment to getting through the process of dismantling the company. 
Oh, for sure. Right. Absolutely. So uh, she was definitely kind of a, a bad actor in the system. Right. <laughs> she, yeah. If, if you believe in the business, right. There's also an, an argument of this is an archaic business. It's better, you know, the products are better served in a different way. Let's dismantle this, the pieces and send off the pieces of the folks who can use them and uh, go about our day. So it's, you know, they, I can argue both sides of that, but you know, in your story, certainly Sarah taking part in the business is kind of a scary reality. And, yeah, uh, for and, sure. and, and, and if you can and, make no. the company perform and modernize, like ultimately what it was, is taking a hundred year old company and making it modern. Right. And, and, you know, there's a, uh, in the epilogue, you know, this, uh, you know, Maxine and Sarah actually have a, I wouldn't say a Vivendi, uh, but they, they do meet. And it was kind of interesting. I got a lot of comments about that just because it showed this other side of Sarah that, you know, she's not actually evil. She's not, a, um, you know, a cartoon villain. Right. Uh, you know, she wanted to, you know, unlock the, uh, the best possible value out of the company, right? Mm. And she actually believed that, um, you know, that the digital aspirations of the company were a fool's errand. And I'm guessing that, uh, you know, she's been burned by technology projects before. Sure. In fact, you know, the Phoenix Project didn't treat her so well. Right? So I think, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, I think she made a very formulaic um, decision. Uh, by formulaic, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, very thoughtful and probably thought through decision helped with this kind of board member saying, you know, there are really two paths for companies. There's growth and there's, Value extraction, right? And, you know, there's no shame in, um, you know, that value path, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe she was um, kind of shown kind of like what the compensation package might look like for her in this new universe, and <laughs> you know, uh, that's you know how all, you know, um, uh, you know, I think that those things factor in. It is not uncommon to find leaders that um, are very good at creating um, financial incentives right. uh, for. That are in alignment with what what they think is right for thing for the company. So yeah, really, you know, she's not a villain. But I think in most of our careers, we've run into uh, people like Sarah who just were in the way, and they used everything in their disposal and every connection, every power, you know, their place of power, you know, to uh, make life impossible. Yeah, and, and well, and and they're motivated by things you probably don't know about. Right. You're, you're completely disconnected with the, the idea that someone is working consciously to dismantle a business to create extract value in a completely different way versus trying to modernize that business to become the new thing that will will carry it forward. They, they both represent returns to shareholders. Yep. But, but you know, the subtle thing in that that I think is a very tough thing to measure in modern business is the value of a cohesive, trusted team. <laughs> right. right. But yeah, yes. So, so two two things I just love to that uh, just got kind of sparked in my head. One is so like one of my aspirations for the Unicorn Project is that it this really is a book for the red shirt engineers, right? Mm-hmm. This is for the people in the engine room, right? The unseen uh, people who toil away, um, uh, you know, in the front lines of development, and yet. I th- and you know in contrast you know the Phoenix project was meant for you know technology leadership right the Bill Palmer he was a um, you know head of uh, operations Maxine the protagonist you know she's a senior developer and architect but I think the unicorn project does actually a better job of telling the story of the bridge crew and even Starfleet command than the Phoenix project did because uh, you know someone told me, you know, I'm the furthest thing uh, there is from red shirt. You know, I deal with uh, executives, but every executive needs to know that the fortunes of their company, the most important person in their organization, are those frontline developers. And they, th- now, this is a story that they need to understand. What are the things they need to do in order for those frontline developers to be productive? And you know, what 
is the tundra of technical debt that they're locked in that is preventing that. And so I just, uh, you know, time will tell, right? But I mean, I think that was uh, really kind of one of my goals is to show that, you know, um, developed productivity, technical debt, these are not just technical concerns. These are the highest level business concerns. And, you know, when you put that alongside things that are, you know, in corporate boardrooms like digital disruption, age of software, right? Now, this is this is a competency they're going to need to be aware of and uh, probably even need to master. Well, and, and just to understand, you know, you're going all the way back to that original O'Reilly presentation. The, the you know, the, the developer is Spock and the operations guy is Scotty, yeah. right? You know, that's the original red shirt. And yeah. to, to the idea that they're plumbers, that they're just down, that just do my bidding. Right. They, they is such a foolish thing because when they're inspired, when they actually have joy in the work they're doing, there's so much more that can be done. There's so much more vision that shows up because you are on the ground seeing the constant feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, I've actually learned a lot about uh, the notion of kind of workplace engagement. And mm-hmm. it has this uh, a very strong connection to the work of uh, Dr. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. So he wrote this amazing book called Flow. Uh, you know, he gave probably one of the uh, best TED Talks ever about uh, just the – uh, what it really feels like to enjoy our work. You know, we lose track of time. We even sometimes lose sense of self, right? Uh, you know, we lose ourselves in the work. And I think as uh, developers, I mean, that is the state we aspire to, right? Whether And it turns out it's not just development. It's writing. It's, uh, you know, any act of creation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there is a very tight linkage between, you know, do you, uh, when you have fast feedback in your work, when you can actually focus on something, you do have states of flow. Um, and that is when we enjoy our work most. That is when we bring our most uh, creative best to the work and we get the one we get the greatest outcomes. And that is actually what drives up things like employee net promoter score. And it drives uh, a sense of um, uh, loyalty. And this is when we want to invite our friends and colleagues to work for on this team, right? Um, so, uh, and and those things are known to be highly uh, correlated with phenomenal organizational performance. To so go back to the state of DevOps uh, report, that's pretty normal for devs. Like state of flow is kind of how you write code efficiently, one way or the <laughs> other. Uh, the real question to me is: is do you see that in operations as well? Well, I, I would actually even question that first. Claim is like when when we don't have a lot of fast feedback and we don't ever get to see our work in production. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's like nine months removed from uh, the time we're actually typing that code, I, I don't actually think that's actually a real state of flow. Right. <laughs> you know, so I, I would uh, first I would just make that observation. But yeah, you know, it, it is amazing. Like when you can actually ship things to customers and have them thank you within hours. Right. That right. is, uh, you know, I think that adds joy to the work. I actually think uh, for sure you see you can see it in infrastructure and operations. And I think it is when they become sort of like developers themselves, right? When they are putting their expertise into platforms, uh, whether it's environment creation or uh, uh, CICD pipelines or monitoring tools or, um, you know, security scans or, you know, orchestration, all these things, it means that we're creating things that developers use. Right. And um, uh, we can also get fast feedback from our internal customers. And I think those tend to be also very happy teams. And one of the things I learned in the course of uh, this book is that this is kind of an incredible juxtaposition of how we treat dev productivity and platforms. Um, I think in the tech giants like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, um, you know, like Google famously puts 1,500 developers on dev productivity. So it's 
you know, $1.5 billion a year, their right. best people. Microsoft, probably three to 5,000 developers. Again, their best people. Mm-hmm. But in most complex organizations, you know, like, uh, not, quote, non-technology companies, the people they put on dev productivity and platforms and, like, building the CICD pipelines are the summer interns. Right. Or the developers who aren't good enough to be developers. <laughs> and so um, it's just that, mis- um, you know, that total opposite of, like, what they uh, – how we value dev productivity. So to answer your question, I, mean, I think uh, when ops and infrastructure and even security people are put in the position of creating these internal platforms that embody their expertise so that every developer can inherit that knowledge and uh, use that knowledge to do their work safely, securely, uh, rapidly, reliably. I mean, that's got to be amazing, right? right? Because you're being thanked all the time <laughs> by grateful developers. Just the, And just that rapid feedback that makes all the difference. And Gene, I got to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. PowerShell is a great admin tool for automating recurring tasks. Wouldn't it be great if you could delegate PowerShell to others in a secure and easy way? Script Runner is the leading solution for PowerShell management. You can delegate PowerShell scripts to help desk and end users with the easy-to-use web application. On top of that, Script Runner offers you a central place for all your PowerShell scripts, credentials, and activities. Want to learn more about PowerShell scripting? Get your free PowerShell cheat sheet for your office. It shows all important commands and commandlets at a glance. Visit the website at scriptrunner.com slash runas and order your free poster today. Scriptrunner, making PowerShell a real solution. And we're back. This is Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Gene Kim. We're talking about the Unicorn Project. And just, you know, we dove pretty hard into flow, which is part of the second of the five ideals. And I, I know these were around before the Unicorn Project, but I thought you told it really well in the Unicorn Project. Can you can we talk through the five ideals? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and by the way, just to uh, tell you a story as a, from writer to writer, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I've, I hit manuscript complete about in January. So it was like 100,000 words, uh, 130,000 words. And my goal is to cut it down to 100,000. And uh, I remember reading it. And uh, <laughs> it was like the – it was kind of the worst point of the whole project. It was where I read it and I'm like – I was telling a friend, Mick Kirsten. Uh, I was like, I've written 100,000 words that say nothing. <laughs> and like, I'm not sure what the point was. I, I, it was clear in my head. Where am I going here? <laughs> yeah. And then um, I got to spend a, a day with uh, Dr. Mick Kirsten and the CEO of CompuWare um, for a day. And – by the middle of the morning, I mean, it just all came to me. And what resulted was the five ideals. And then uh, the goal became, was it was so obvious. So like, cut everything that have nothing to do, anything that doesn't have to do with the five ideals, get rid of. So the five ideals are, uh, one, locality and simplicity. So that really is, to what degree can uh, any engineer do what they need to do by going to one file, one module, one class, mm-hmm. one container, one whatever, and just... Make the change there and finish it. And sh- and it shows up in production. And it shows up in production, right? And the opposite is like in order to get anything done, I have to touch everything. Yeah. <laughs> and that means I have to touch – like I have to go work through to all the teams. And so um, so that uh, means that uh, there's no locality to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and locality requires you know simplicity and um, you know the purging of complexity. So the, the, the outcome of that is the second ideal, focus, flow, and joy. You know, if we can – uh, if everything is within our control um, and we're sort of de- sufficiently decoupled from, um, you know, other things that we depend upon, that's when we can actually, you know, get work done quickly and, and push it through the entire value stream. And that's what allows that sense of focus, flow, and joy uh, that uh, we were talking about before. Uh, 
Uh, the third is improvement of daily work. So that showed up in the, the Phoenix project. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion that improvement of daily work is even more important than daily work itself. Yeah. And I think when it comes to technical debt, right, it is this um, this ideal that actually says we have to make room to 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 make architectures that allow people to get things done and to, to you know, pay down technical debt because greatness is not free, right? So no. the greatness, you know, is created and you can't do that if you're spending all your time just, you know, shipping features. Uh, well, and, and, and so features get slower and slower and slower as that cruft builds up. The infrastructure is not good and the mistakes made before are never cleaned up. Eventually you grind to a stop. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the kind of the big discoveries for me was, um, this uh, book called Transforming Nokia by uh, Risto Salasma, uh, a chairman, um, but he was on the board from 2008 to 2010. And he described a story where in 2010, the VP of strategy told him that the Symbian OS build times was 48 hours. And so he was the founder <laughs> of F-Secure. Right? And he said hearing that was being like hit in the head with a sledgehammer because he knew that if it took 48 hours for any developer to know whether their change worked or would have to be redone, it, it was uh, it it's, was impossible. Yeah. He said all this platform that has promised near-term profitability and long-term viability was an illusion. And rapidly, they killed that and moved to Windows Mobile, which wasn't so good for them either. But that was a better bet than staying on Symbian OS. Right. And so I, mean, I think that is the, the tundra that we must avoid at all costs and, and something that – you know, the opposite example is the Microsoft security stand down, right? The, the, mm. fe- the year-long feature freeze that spanned, that started off in .NET, that was so successful, led to Windows, Office, you know, every product like Exchange, and, you know, had probably saved the company. Um, so then uh, the fourth is psychological safety, right? Uh, you know, you can't create improvements. You can't uh, create a uh, in innovation culture if everyone's afraid to actually say what they really think. Um, if, uh, all mistakes punished. are punished, Exactly. You know, uh, that blame that shows up very much in the um, State of DevOps report. Um, and a little side note, I was so delighted this year that uh, they were, you know, because of their new role, uh, they, they being Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble, mm-hmm. uh, because of their uh, being inside of Google, they could actually tap some of the early Google Project Oxygen studies where they found that the top predictor of what made great teams great with psychological safety. Yeah. Um, and so it was. And, and, uh, and again, another one of those absolutely obvious things the moment you say it. And yet, how many workplaces have we walked through where you just see that fear? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, it's to thread that through kind of the early parts of uh, uh, the Unicorn Project to kind of reveal that you know, that's something that's working against them, right? And then Sarah is actually a part of that, right? She mm. wants to hold people accountable. And her way of holding people accountable is punishment yeah. <laughs> and it's more public, approval. Yeah. Public blame. Yeah, it's just, it's it's remarkably toxic. And then the fifth one, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I got a lot of delight out of, was um, you know customer focus. In other words, you know, ideal is, you know, regardless of what area the business, what or the technology organization or whatever, right? We really have the customer needs first, and you know, if customers don't value it, um, if if uh, it's not creating lasting, durable, competitive advantage. Then you know maybe this is not something we should be working on. Um, and so for me, the the big aha moment in that CompuWare visit was this data center tour, where you know uh, I was sort of scratching my head with Mick. It's like, why is this on our agenda? I, I you know I've I've seen all the hail on extinguishers. I don't need to see another one. Sure. But you walk into this data center and there's like two Z mainframes, and then the rest of the data center is empty. And there's these 
outlines of where the racks used to be and these little tombstones that said <laughs> which business time? process was there, right, exactly, yeah. and how much money did they save by, you know, getting rid of it by moving to a SaaS service. And so that was, uh, you know, that was $8 million that they were able to reclaim and, you know, put back into R&D. Um, and so that was, for me, I think the most uh, vivid uh, manifestation of uh, you know, Dr. Jeffrey Moore's core versus context. Yeah, so absolutely. he wrote a book called Zones to Win, Crossing the Chasm. But then he, the amazing uh, notion he had was that core. Core is what creates lasting durable business advantage that customers are willing to pay for. Context is everything else. And so CompuWare got rid of the everything else and they didn't allow context to starve core. And I know this is something that uh, Jeffrey Snover is passionate about and he was a huge inspiration for, uh, um, you know, helping bring that concept front and center. And, and just the last note is that, you know, I think the reason why this might be relevant for infrastructure people is that I got to ask, how did it feel for that person to be told we have to empty out the data center when they spent the last 10 years Building. filling it up? Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And then, uh, you know, uh, the computer CEO, Chris O'Malley, I mean, he said, you know, he said, he said very candidly, it, was like, it felt terrible, but it's something that we had to do and, uh, you know, he, we had to change it so that he became proud of emptying that data center That because, you know, he's actually enabling the long-term viability of the company. Um, and it's just an amazing story. The tombstones are an important part of that process, right? The symbols of we did this intentionally. This doesn't represent emptiness. This represents evolution. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And and so they would celebrate that. You know, they would celebrate the tonnage of equipment being hauled away, you know, <laughs> taking sledgehammers to the equipment, and they would celebrate that in the town halls. And it was a um, uh, it created a sense of meaning and it said kind of what our role in the organization is, right? So it's just, uh, I thought, a beautiful story. Again, there was, there was symbology like that in, in the Unicorn Project about the old hardware that we continue to depend on for a long time that actually, not only it wasn't enough just to retire it, but to actually take hammers to it. <laughs> right. that, that was actually based on Scott Prue, the uh, SVP of R&D at CSG. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's actually a video uh, he showed of him taking a sledgehammer and they actually had to mute out the sound because what he said is not actually audible in polite no. company. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's got a very office space vibe to it, too. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, we did uh, one of the companies I worked in a long time ago uh, where we were finally retiring very old servers. And uh, we uh, slagged them with a little thermite. Oh my god! <laughs> and and then broke up the the sort of metallic glass that was left over when it was burned down, and gave everybody a chunk. Oh man, that's awesome! They're it's like, like the uh, trophies and yes. the victory, uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> well, if you, and if you've ever like thermite's disturbingly easy to make, and I won't describe how to do it, but you know we all have our weird skills. Uh, we burn we burn that machine down in a in a gravel quarry because thermite literally will burn holes through rocks. It burns so hot. So the the video of it, you know, incinerating and sparks flying on us over is amazing. But what was left was like glassy slag. And it's it's beautiful in its own way. No, you know what I love about that scene is that, you know, he's actually saying like uh as he's destroying this equipment with a sledgehammer, he's like, This is for ruining every vacation I ever went on. And this is for <laughs> like uh, you know, you horrible eight U boxes, right? It's like you uh, you know, I lost years of my life, and I think even Brent got to uh, just tell him uh, air his grievances about yeah. these horrible servers that were being retired. <laughs> That's funny. I think there's a a wonderful ceremony, um, a purpose of a ceremony like that. <laughs> I, I look at these five ideals together, and it seems like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, you know, you're not the first. You're the second person who said that, and okay. I never really thought about it like that. And I think you're right. Like uh, one person uh, whose opinion I respect greatly. Uh, He's actually very immersed in uh, 
Dr. Geoffrey Moore's world. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, was it an accident that customer focus came last? Yes. And and you even said customer focus, our first focus. But you can't do customer focus if you don't have the other four. Yeah. And and I, you know, and and I was not that, I'm not smart enough to be that deliberate, but I I think uh, you're saying very concretely, I think just the intuition of why I put it last. Mm -hmm. Um, you, if and you some- if you don't have an ability to prove your work, if you don't have an ability to, <laughs> you know, look, locality and simplicity to me speaks of autonomy, that my ability to make a change actually exists and I can function well in <laughs> it and make things work and can make mistakes and survive. Only when I have those ingredients can I actually focus on the customer in a meaningful way. Yeah. In fact, I have, I'm, I'm, I think, uh, I'm actually cheering up a little bit. I mean, I think that's such a, I think it's so important. And it's so overlooked. Mm-hmm. And as this uh, person said, and I, I, I can't wait to tell you who it is, uh, like when I get his permission to uh, tell you who it is. Uh, but you know, he said, you know, to even say it even more bluntly, he said, um, let's not even talk about having a seat at the table. If you don't have these other four things, you don't even belong at the table. Right. <laughs> Which I thought yeah. you, you, was very funny. Uh, it's very, it's very profound. I I know your time is limited. I don't want to miss out on this particular thought, which is in both the the Unicorn Project and in uh, the uh, Phoenix Project, there are these mentors that appear, and there's there's similarities. You know, you have a character in mind. I'm sure you have some people in mind when those characters appear as mentors, and I wonder about finding them in your own work. For someone reading this book and going, this is the way I want my work to be, when mm-hmm. does that – that person seems to mysteriously appear in the book. How does it appear for everyone else? Yeah. No, no. So you don't want a mentor like Eric. I mean, Eric is uh, – you know, uh, <laughs> Eric doesn't – you know, <laughs> Eric is like based on the archetype of, uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi or uh, Yoda, right? right. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of appears randomly at kind of the opportune times. And that's not what you want in a mentor, yeah, speaks somewhat opaquely and and without describing intent in any way, and then disappears. Exactly. And by the way, one of the comments in the early drafts was like, "Wait a minute, Eric seems to just be laying it all out for Maxine, where you know he had, um, you know, Bill Palmer in the Phoenix Project, you know, do scavenger hunts all the time. Like, right. shouldn't Maxine work a little bit harder?" And I was like, "No, no, Maxine has enough problems. She's been exiled to this terrible place called the Phoenix Project. <laughs> like, I I can't do that to her. That's just like too mean." Mm-hmm. Um. But it's a really great question. I mean, I think uh, without a doubt, uh, mentors are the most, in, at least has been my experience, mm-hmm. um, one of the most important things to have. And uh, I, I think there's this quote that I cherish, which is, you are only as good uh, as the top five people you hang out with. Right. Yeah. So if you are a level five thug, right, uh, but you hang around level 30 death mages, right, you're going to do amazing things, right? And so the question then becomes – like, how do you get to hang out with level 30 death mages or uh, clerics or whatever your, you know, yeah. D&D class of choices? Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to go down it, the World of Warcraft path, but we won't go there. Right. <laughs> right. And it's like, it turns out like, uh, yeah, you got to be helpful. We got to, you know, uh, if you can help them on things that they care about, well, suddenly you will find, you'll be not, not only tolerated, but you will be embraced. Mm-hmm. Um, Sought out. Sought out. Absolutely. And then soon, you know, because you're going on these great quests, you know, you will, you are now a level 30, whatever. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, the, the steps I would recommend is just, uh, look around you 
and find the best in the game. Um, and some might be out of reach. Um, you know, they've transcended the the plane, the mortal plane of existence, and mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, you can't actually reach them. But the, you know, some are, um, you know, some are within reach. And it's always great to ask you. Know, um, what are you working on? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's most fun for you? And often, you know, even just to use uh, that to understand like how you could be helpful within it. Sure. Um, and then soon you have the basis of a mutually exothermic relationship, right? And uh, and these are it helps them, it helps you. And uh, maybe my last thought on that is, you know, I love studying the DevOps enterprise uh, community, and I think they are the best networkers I've ever met. And I don't mean you know, hanging out at a cocktail party and just being able to talk to someone. These are people who f- seek out people who can help them, and they're phenomenal at helping others. And mm-hmm. so you end up with these incredible cohorts of people who um, are actively helping each other all the time. And and so I've learned so much just by watching that. And so that's actually one of my aspirations with the DevOps Enterprise Summit, which is create that uh, uh, context and uh, a setting where those kind of relationships can form and i have to imagine your own career right those things have been um you know i bet you can point to a bunch of people who had a there was a life before that yeah. person was a part of your life and then after right uh in a, in a professional setting and it also is, is only a certain duration you know that you you call it exactly right there was a period of three or four years where every friday i had a call with two friends effectively all doing different work but just checking in with each other pressing against each other to be better and it and in, I, I don't even miss it per se it was a point in time when we were all growing very rapidly mm-hmm. and we helped each other at that time uh and it's interesting you know i've been to your devops enterprise summit and made a bunch of shows there and, and interacted with these folks and they're all consciously being mentored and mentoring almost at the same time yeah yeah, and I think um, you, know, you said something very interesting. It's like when you are helping someone and uh, they are helping you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of, of uh, that's actually what friends do for each other. Sure. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, it is this kind of magical thing where uh, you know these relationships are, become friendships, right? And those are you know those are um, you know like what better outcome is that, right? Yeah. Uh, we're both advancing our goals, and we like hanging out with each other, and yeah. we get something out of it. <laughs> yeah, we we push each other to be better, which is interesting. And I think it's it's you know uh, often I've had folks ask about it's like, well, why would I mentor someone? It's like you have no idea what value you get from that. <laughs> right. like, you know, I just um, maybe not to. I, I don't want to gloss over this saying this is what um, you know. You don't do this because of a uh, a phil- you know some sort of deep philanthropic need. We do it because it helps us get better. Yeah. But I also think, and I was introduced this too late to put into the book, but um, Dr. Um, Cotter, um, you know, the famous for the uh, organizational change management work, um, he he wrote a book called Accelerate. And in that book, and that's that is X L R eight, you know, four characters, four digits. Um, Ugh. And, he introduces yeah exactly uh, and he introduces this concept of the second operating system and so the first operating system in his parlance is the the formal organization you know the org chart you know people report to people but then he said you know in these kind of dynamic learning organizations my word not his um, you have this more informal structure that's about networks and like uh, you know expertise you can seek sure. people who you enlist to help in the Unicorn Project Brent. 
not senior, but the guy everyone turns to because right. fixes things, understands things, finds the solutions. Like it doesn't matter what your level in the company is, what the hierarchy is. We learn the folks that solve problems that can help us and we go to them. Right. And, and, and uh, absolutely. And yes, and we understand Brent's needs, even though he can't verbalize it, because mm-hmm. he's on every page of rotation call for the last five years. <laughs> right? well, and, and because uh, whenever he wasn't, things fell <laughs> apart. Exactly. And so, you know, this is very kind of, uh, and I wish I could explore it more in the book, but, uh, you know, the steps they take to help protect Brent, yes. um, you know, that didn't come from Bill Palmer. It was just uh, kind of these, you know, informal things they did to allow him to focus um, and, and so forth. So, yeah, I think the, the, the thesis of the second operating system is that those, that informal network will become more powerful um, and more important or are more important than what the formal org chart says. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole rebellion, their ability to fluidly create teams and, <laughs> you know, uh, recruit people. Um, you know, I think that is a kind of a demonstration of a very skillful, there's people who can skillfully navigate that second operating system. Yeah. And, but you're speaking to a really broader idea too, which is that often, especially in large organizations, we have a hierarchy that is so entrenched. It doesn't allow for rapid change for these short duration projects. I need to solve this problem over these two hours. Now this team forms, solves it and then disperses. Mm-hmm. There are very few, you know, formal management architectures that make that possible. That's such an interesting observation, and I would say that it's in the sh- in the in the frame of the short time frames, and even the long time frames. And mm-hmm. you know what? That's what a lot of this was modeled after because I went, didn't learn about the second operating system beforehand. But it was from um, observing Jeffrey Snover, mm-hmm. and so when he tells that story about you know the um, you know what the eleven year journey to get uh, command lines into you know Windows, yes, um, you know the 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 story he tells is one of incredible sophistication savviness you know whether it was the uh, monad manifesto to find the kindred spirits uh to having to put up with uh you know windows 7 vista you know the <laughs> you know the 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 harder and harder battle you sure. know to try to get it in to finding a champion inside the windows uh, the, the exchange server team mm-hmm. uh that became the uh you know, he was then now protected and championed by, you know, a significant business unit uh, yeah. that people did listen to, uh, which, you know, f- was the basis for kind of injecting, you know, PowerShell, you know, to where it is now. I mean, that it started with the exchange. Well, it didn't start. But, I mean, a turning point was, you know, to say well, for the, the P&L owners of Exchange Server to say we can't get to where we need to go without PowerShell. Right. So I would say that is another example of someone who very skillfully and um, patiently. (laughs) Well, and absolutely uh, that cross-cutting concern, what made PowerShell successful was that it poked into all these different groups at Microsoft. And there's no formal hierarchy for that. Like he had to cross between teams, not working for any of them. (laughs) And and persuade with no power, straight up influence – Yep. It, a, it helped that his idea was a good idea and his technology was competent, but that's not necessarily enough. It, it There's a certain amount of straight-up persuasion that needs to happen for that to really uh, be successful. And then, of course, the network effect takes a hold. Once, it, you know, exchange was first, but it wasn't the last, and as more and more tools came on, it, you suddenly got that Jeffrey Moore effect, right? You got your early adopters, then you got your leading group, and suddenly there was a set of laggards. They're like, holy cow, we need to get on the PowerShell train. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, arguably, right, he even took a demotion to uh, uh, <laughs> to fully focus on PowerShell. So he yes. was, you know, by the book in, in a position of less, less influence. And so by his just, you know, sheer perseverance. Um, you know, I love the way he tells the story. Like uh, after PowerShell is everywhere, 
um, you know, someone came up to him and said, yeah, um, yeah, it was pretty tough for you back then, wasn't it? Uh, but, you know, rest assured, we were fully behind you. And I think kind yeah. of the, his reaction was like, I could, I sure couldn't have, I, you know, by your behaviors, I sure would never have guessed that you were fully behind me. Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah, pretty sure you weren't actually, because I looked right. back there. There was nobody back there. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so I, I love the, um, yeah, so this is my, I, I just think there's a lot of, um, I have confidence that in 10, 15 years, you know, this will be far better understood and, you know, this will be things that will be training, you know, um, employees on like how to do it. But in the meantime, you know, we're sort of piecing together what we need to do to get to where we need to go. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see the, you know, for a long time we had the agile manifesto in the development world. Now it's just becoming development that there isn't really another way. And, and I wonder if DevOps just becomes business, the way that we make things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, in fact, um, that is such an interesting insight, and which is one of the reasons why uh, in, the, in the Unicorn Project, um, Eric says, in some ways, technical debt. It is a, such an important concept, but mm-hmm. to, it, it almost marginalizes the problem because it could be now considered a technology problem, and that means yes. it's solved by technology people. Yeah. Uh, and so the the more it only shows up once, but the notion of complexity debt, right? You know, complexity business people don't understand, mm-hmm. and complexity is not caused just by the technology organization. That yeah. is that is a shared co-creation between <laughs> business and technology. And you're right. Uh, you know, it is. So Without te- a doubt. Technical you know, people do not merge. set themselves short deadlines that force them to cut corners. Right. Business sets those deadlines. Right. And, and ideally, right, even that dichotomy is a false one, right? Uh, we both have the same goals. Uh, in fact, there's a line in the Unicorn Project. It's like um, uh, the business sets those deadlines. And Shannon, uh, the security engineer, she says – they're not the business. They're not the customer. They're our colleagues. Right. right? <laughs> you know, there's not yeah, a, they are not other. That, right. Exactly. Right. It's not exactly. They're not other. And there's not a commercial relationship. We do. We are actually on the same team. Mm-hmm. And uh, that to me is uh, something, something that I think it is inevitable, right? Yeah. That if, we, technology if we fail to persuade our colleagues to understand the price of a deadline, then we mm-hmm. failed. Right. And it's not, the business's fault. It is mm-hmm. our fault. Mm-hmm. And it's it's still there's a big piece of this is just persuasion and helping people understand what's hard, what's easy. You know, technologies can be opaque sometimes. In fact, one of the things that uh, I'm just excited by, I'm hoping this will help advance the understanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is something I could not have verbalized uh, three years ago. Is that you know the notion that yeah, there is a time to go fast and there is a time to you know cut corners. And if you're trying to get to be first to market or you are last in market, you need to get in. Yeah, you cut corners, but then you have to you have to you have to pay the price of yeah. paying the technical debt down, um, and and so it is not about absolutes, but it is about you know um, when do we need to go fast and when not if <laughs> when are we gonna um, take the time to actually clean up the mess we made so yes. that we can actually sustainably continue to work on this area of code you know for the long term improvement of daily work improvement of daily work yes. <laughs> Well, Gene, got another book in yet? This one took you a couple of years. Yeah, uh, three years, three years in the making, and um, I'm I'm so pleased that it's uh, coming out. And you know, every author, right? You can relate. Uh, uh, we have this fear that we never want to. Nobody, nobody likes writing. They just they like having written. Right, exactly. <laughs> and 
I don't know about you, but I have this. My big fear is that you know people will read it and say, "Oh my gosh, he should have stopped at the Phoenix Project because this is terrible." <laughs> and uh, and yet, uh, I I think this is uh, on so many dimensions that I care about. It's so much of a better book that the the stakes are higher, um, and you know I think it's a better story and it uh, shows what the business imperative is better. I I I really hope people enjoy it and. Uh, even more than the Phoenix Project. I mean, that is my well. I, I've read them both, and I think this is a better book. <laughs> Not that the, you know the line I used to use when I was encouraging people to read the Phoenix Project was, "I hey, don't read it for the love story. Read it for the inspiration to make your organization better." Uh, the Unicorn Project is stronger than that. The Unicorn Project is this really digs into the challenges you have in an organization that doesn't understand uh, why they're why they're struggling. And rather than persuade them, you simply try and solve the problems. That's awesome. Uh, that means a lot to me, uh, Richard. No, thank you. And then, uh, yeah, I think uh, the goal was really kind of evoke those emotions um, and hopefully give ammo to people who want to, um, you know, make those changes. And hopefully it will open up some eyes. And so these adversaries will hopefully become allies and supporters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a more emotional book. No two ways about it. You are moved in this book. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> Phew. <laughs> Gene Kim. Yeah, you did it. Uh, it's been a couple of years, friend. I'm sorry you hadn't been on sooner, but you've been a busy, busy person. And But I appreciate you making the time to come talk to me today. Richard, uh, thank you so much. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching you in a couple of weeks. And again, thank you for your kind words and uh, all your support and everything that you do. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to our next hangout. Awesome. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. Mm -hmm.